Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are officially starting our season four content because it was a little bit delayed due to the Reformation specials, but now we're getting into it. And I was a little bit torn on whether or not we were going to move into the denomination series or push that back, but we decided to go ahead and do the denomination series. And so a couple of things are worth noting that there will be a couple of off weeks um, because of wanting to have the denomination series be one stream with no breaks with you know random episodes in the middle of it. Um, that way it's easy to get to and, you know, an Apple and stuff like that, because even whenever you organize it and break it up and number it and do all the different strategies to make it accessible, it's, it's not really, that's why I have it where you can search it on the website if you need to. Point being is that there's gonna be a couple of breaks, namely Thanksgiving week. And then I think it's like the week before Christmas, I'll announce it on social media. So if you follow me, which you most likely do at this point, um, you'll see that schedule. I believe I actually have the preliminary schedule already up. And you can see that on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, but before we get into the denomination series and begin this um, episode, I do want to say that Christ of the Cure is subscriber supported. We are at the bare minimum of our like financial ideal. And so if you believe that Christ of the Cure is a solid platform, if you believe in the way that the topics are approached and the materials that are put out, and you want some additional content such as exclusive courses and exclusive notes, Prayerfully consider becoming a patron and joining the support team. Really, how much funding I get allows me to take on more and think about expanding. Uh, and I really do want to focus on quality over quantity. I really do want to put out more free PDFs and stuff like that. Um, I've actually been blessed to receive emails and messages from individuals coming out of cults, you know, uh, converting to Christianity, or um, just new Christians asking questions, or just a variety of people, pastors um, reaching out to me, small group leaders reaching out to me saying that they use the PDFs, that the PDFs have been helpful, that the podcasts have been helpful in discerning particular issues. And and that's a, a blessing to me. And your patronage, your support will help continue that. And I do want to make more. I have plans for more PDFs and mini series that will hopefully further that aiding of various churches and Christians and stuff like that. So like a mini series I want to do after this denomination series is a mini series on I'm saved now, what kind of thing. And so that that'll be interesting. I kind of outlined what that would look like on my social media page as well. Um, so that that's really what it comes down to is that uh, Christ the Cure is subscriber supported. And I know what everyone's thinking, you know, subscriptions are getting old. No one wants to do that. Um, and I also know that a lot of people don't want to sign up because I'm not nonprofit and they don't get that tax deduction. Uh, and that's completely understandable. I, I understand that. I chose that route on purpose. There's a lot of reasons why I chose not to go nonprofit. So the, the point is I understand those things. And at the end of the day, you know, patrons should be patrons because they feel led to, because they believe in what Christ the Cure is doing and how it's being done. And there's a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of ministries, a lot of Patreons out there. So ultimately, it comes down to, you know, do you think Christ the Cure is worth supporting? Do you think that the approach of Christ the Cure is great, the content exceptional? And if so, then consider prayerfully becoming a part of the support team at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. And hopefully we'll hit the ideal funding goal and renew for season five. Either way, um, thank you for being a listener of Christ is the Cure. Thank you for, you know, the encouragement I've received and really those emails and those DMs and those encouragements are a fantastical means of support as well, along with, you know, people sharing the podcast and pointing people to the resources. 
That's what they're there for. But it's also encouraging to me and it helps support me. So it's not all financial stuff. It all means a lot. It all helps. And so let's go ahead and stop rambling about this and move into today's topic. So like I said, today we're beginning the denomination series, and this is going to be kind of the introduction to what you can expect and some preliminary definitions and things that you want to know before we get into uh, the longer form series. Uh, this will kind of be like the reference point so that we don't have to keep re-explaining some things. So let's just kind of hop in. Denominations within the Christian tradition generally carry a negative connotation. This is no surprise, especially within the last, you know, 100 years where denominations have been radically uh, painted as negative, and it doesn't help that you have polemics from like Catholics and Eastern Orthodox who also pile onto that. And so the, the negative connotations can manifest in several ways. The most common is that uh, denominations are different versions of Christianity wholesale, like they're just different, you know, pick your pick your version of Christianity, right? Or that Christians cannot agree upon anything. Uh, this is usually what it's kind of painted like in the polemic realm where um, there, there's differences on secondary issues. Therefore, that must mean that like, oh, Christians can't agree on anything. This just shows the whole thing to be bunk. I mean, honestly, sometimes this is used by non-believers as well. Um, so the other notion is that denominations are man-made versions of Christianity that ultimately dethrone Christ. You know, they put emphasis on, on, on these men who started these denominations rather than Christ. You know, sometimes people think that like Calvinism or Arminianism are denominations. They're not. They're not denominations. They're soteriological systems, and denominations usually will hold to one or the other. And I say this because for the most part, most denominations can be identified with a particular group of people or a person, but the only one with an actual name on it is Lutheran, and even then Lutherans recognize that Lutheran was uh, coined as a derogatory term against the earlier Lutherans by the Catholic Church. But either way, usually this notion that denominations are man-made versions of Christianity that dethrone Christ comes across as, you know, we don't need any other name than Christ. And this idea usually comes from those within the church who want to correct the disunity that arises from that point above that Christians can't seem to agree on things. So the, the heart behind it is good. Back to the Bible, back to Christ. Let's focus on unity. But it's a little bit... Um, I don't know how to say it nicely. It's a little naive, um, and it misunderstands what denominations are. The the no creed but Christ mantra doesn't hold up, things like that. Uh, we've talked about that before, so I'm not going to get into that. So many things can ultimately be said on the topic of denominations. There's a wide array of feelings on the subject that make it difficult to navigate, but we do need to recognize some things such as, on the one hand, there's a great diversity and unity in denominations, and one that surpasses an institutional claim to be the sole institution of Christendom and the arbiter of unity. Uh, it doesn't make unity bound so tightly where there's uniform agreement on secondary or third issues, right? Uh, it's not unity has to be around this particular institution. Instead, unity is around a tight core of doctrinal truth. And then there's room for diversity, which really... I would argue that that is what we see in the early church. Um, a lot of people, you know, harp on Protestants because they they don't adhere to a particular institution such as Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. But at the end of the day, whenever you look at the early church and you look how diverse they were on a number of topics or the articulations of a particular topic, you have a more Protestant picture. And I know some people will hear that and they'll be like, no, you're, you're crazy. 
But that's really what I see. Whenever you look at the ecumenical councils, you have this core unity around the ecumenical councils and the doctrines that came out of that. And then other than that, there was diversity. There was different opinions on the Apocrypha. There was different opinions on the communion of the saints. We talked about that with the the Reformation specials on Halloween, how there were people who were pushing back consistently and constantly on the cult of the saints, and there was that diversity. But now, if you choose to go with an institution, that kind of doctrine is ingrained to the point where if you're going to join that institution, you have to check those boxes. Like, they're not optional. It's these package deals and these institutions where you have to hold this package, and if you don't, you're not part of the unity. And that's what Protestants don't agree with. We, we believe in a wider Catholicity and a more uh, core unity with diversity and other issues. Now, whether or not you agree with that assessment, that's kind of what I would say, that there's there's a unity and diversity in denominations that is more rich than a rigid conformity. But on the other hand, it is true that there tends to be a sense of superiority or strife between denominations. I mean, even looking at traditional denominations, if you look at the Presbyterians and the Baptists, and you see how they talk about being reformed, or you see them talking about baptism, it gets pretty heated, especially on the internet, which we can't really use the internet as a means to gauge, you know, uh, how traditions view unity and Catholicity. But it is true that things get heated and that there is sometimes strife or superiority complexes that come out of that. Um, because logically, they believe they are closer to the scriptural teaching on these other issues. So there is a tension for us to recognize that there is unity in essentials and diversity in non-essentials, and that we are going to feel heated on particular topics. Because, I mean, honestly, even in, in the most minute things, we can get heated because we believe that we're correct. But at the same time, this isn't something that's unique to Protestantism. And so... I mean, if you look at the trads and you look at the modernists and Catholicism, they're having the same superiority, strife, discussions, debates. And so it's not exclusive. It's a problem. It's a, it's a human problem. It's not really something you can just hide and get away from. And so on that front, there is a recognition that there is a beauty and unity in essentials and diversity in non-essentials, recognizing that we also need to just try to be humble, try to have these disagreements um, in a Christ-like manner. But the most perplexing issue surrounding the topic of denominations really concerns what groups count as a denomination. You know, how many denominations are there? What exactly do they believe? And that last point will be our primary focus for this series. Those two former points about, you know, how many there are, what counts as a denomination, we'll talk about before we get into the series. But the last one is really our focus of this series. So what we'll be doing is we'll be defining what makes up a denomination, trying to define a denomination. We'll talk a little bit about the accurate number or count of denominations. And then following that, we'll examine where denominations differ and their particular emphasis. Now, most books that I've seen have focused on the history of each denomination, which we're going to have a severely limited historical summary of each. And yeah, it's worth pointing out that the history of them is important, where they came from, and so we're going to summarize it. But if you want a more robust history, I would particularly recommend the Handbook of Denominations in the United States, edited by Roger Olson. Of course, it's limited to the United States, but it is excellent. And there's another one out there. Is it Randy Rhodes? No, that's a guitarist. It's uh, Ron Rhodes. Ron Rhodes has a book on denominations that's good as well. And so those are going to be more historical heavy. I think Ron Rhodes 
talks a little bit more about theology than the Handbook of Denominations. I don't recall off the top of my head, but those are good resources on that. So our historical survey will be very limited, kind of just like key points just so you know where they came from, but I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty, especially with like the Baptists. Baptist history gets kind of convoluted, um, especially since Baptist is a huge category that encompasses different thoughts. Uh, It's strange. It's kind of like, it's kind of like taking all of these groups like Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and just calling them Pado-Baptists and leaving it like that and saying, all right, look at this one denomination of the Pado-Baptists. It's, it's kind of not fair. And if we did that, it'd be very difficult to track them. But that kind of happens with Baptists. And I get it. Baptists are a pretty distinctive group because of their position on baptism. But nonetheless, it's, it's a little bit of a pain. So we're going to focus more on what they believe theologically, we're going to outline what each denomination believes. So this will not be super in-depth. It's to kind of get your feet wet. Uh, The goal is to inform without polemics. Uh, Obviously, I have disagreements with various denominations on several points, and I may even have a negative disposition towards one or another, but my goal is to inform you without letting that slip, let it be as objective as possible. That's my goal trying to look at their sources to explain things their way, trying to make sure I properly represent them. And so I'm doing my best. I'm going to be as objective as I can. Some things may slip. That's just going to happen. Further, this series is not interested in groups outside of the Protestant tradition, but instead those that grew from the Protestant tradition. And I say grew from the Protestant tradition because some groups like Lutherans or um, Anglicans don't like being called Protestant. They, they don't like that. They like being recognized as Catholics. Whenever I say Catholics, I don't mean Roman Catholic. I mean Protestant Catholics, but they don't like the term Protestant because they want to understand themselves as not being in opposition to something, but rather being positively Catholic. Hopefully that makes sense. So while Anglicans and Lutherans, for example, don't necessarily like being called Protestant, they are going into this series because they came out from the Protestant tradition or the Protestant Reformation. So that's that's uh, the limitation there. And even with that, there will be a limitation on who's covered and to what extent. And so if you see that I've missed someone or left someone out, that's that's just how it's going to be. Right now, I'm estimating about 12 episodes. And so I'm looking at each denomination as a general class and then mention in passing a few breaks in a class that are significant. I'm not going to mention every single one but I'm going to mention the most significant ones, the most prominent ones, right? Uh, but every denomination will be treated as a general class. So whenever we talk about a denomination, we'll, we'll speak about the denomination broadly, kind of like their core. And then I'll mention like X, Y, and Z group are generally considered liberal and conservative Christian circles. And usually this means that an alternate group has been formed as a conservative alternative underneath this general class in question. And sometimes this can also denote conservative alternatives that have risen as more strict than their historical denomination. So they're more conservative, right? Uh, But in most cases, the most prominent progressive deviant will be noted when necessary. For example, if we look at the Lutheran um, denomination, there was a split where there was a more liberal Lutheranism that effectively created a different denomination that many Lutherans see as invalid. While that group will be noted, 
It will only be done in passing. We will still consider Lutheranism as a broader class. And it's important to recognize that these dynamics can go both ways. Sometimes you'll have the main denomination become liberal and have conservatives branch off. And then sometimes it's the other way around where the liberal ones will branch off in order to be more liberal. And so what do I mean by liberal here? What I mean by liberal is a deviation from the historical and conservative articulations of a particular group. And things get kind of difficult whenever you start seeing things like, well, a group broke off of a particular denomination because they weren't dealing with slavery and they wanted to take a different position of, you know, uh, abolishing slavery. Therefore, who's the more conservative one? Who's the more liberal one? Nowadays, whenever we're talking about it in a modern sense, it's dealing with issues of women's role in the church and the lesbian and gay community's role in the church or position in the church or how we view those issues at large. So uh, for the most part, this series will focus on those modern um, issues whenever we're talking about. If I was to look up a denomination online right now, which ones would be considered liberal in terms of how they view social issues and things of that nature? But if you haven't guessed, it gets kind of difficult um, because of, well, how are we understanding liberal and how are we understanding conservative? And so ultimately, by virtue of the progressiveness of a progressive or liberal denomination, it will be assumed to be the deviant. The historical or conservative articulation will be considered the norm and everything else will be considered liberal. And it does get kind of hard because like if you look at the Episcopal Church in the United States, the Episcopal Church is generally considered liberal, but it's also the main line. It's the historic branch. And these other splits came off of that to be more conservative. And so it's kind of like, how do you, how do you handle that in a series like this? So our discussion like that is going to be pretty limited. We're going to be focusing on the, the denominations in a broad sense. That's, that's really where we're landing on that. Um, it's also crucial to recognize that every single Christian communion is experiencing tension right now between the conservative and liberal ideas. And this is the same within the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. This is not exclusive to Protestantism, but it's often said to Protestants that this is our problem. We caused this. But that's that's a debate for everyone right now. You, you can't escape it. So before pressing on, it's important to say that whenever we're asking the question of what is a denomination, something is worth noting about the label and denominations in general. Uh a lot of people push back on the label of denominations. We kind of mentioned that above. And many of these people who have pushed back against denominations have ironically created denominations as a stand against denominations. And there are both good and bad aspects altogether. We've already mentioned this, a greater sense of unity, but that also that um, tendency to maybe be more divisive because of those traditions or camps or, you know, things of that nature, kind of like the club mentality. But uh, really... The issue on the terminology of denominations or the necessity or the helpfulness of denominations can't be completely undermined or, or ignored. There is something helpful to denominations. Whenever we're looking at, you know, Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists, we can look at those and understand what they believe. Those labels make them recognizable. So if I'm looking for a church that doesn't baptize babies, I'm looking for a Baptist church for the most part. If I'm looking for a church that is more Arminian in its articulation, I'm looking for a Methodist or a Nazarene church. I think that's what they're called. Um, 
we are united in Christ, but at the end of the day, Baptists and Presbyterians on the practice of infant baptism will diverge. And so the best strategy for unity is not to duke it out in a single congregation each time a baby is born, but instead have fellowship with those who share the same convictions. What I mean is we could all say, forget the denominations, Baptists and Presbyterians, let's just merge together and be one. But we have different church government. We have different views on baptism and how we run our congregation will be difficult and it will always end up in debates, discussions, and ultimately divisiveness whenever we can simply say, hey, we recognize we have unity, but I'm going to go fellowship with those who hold my convictions in the Baptist realm or the Presbyterian realm. Of course, this is not to say that a Baptist can't go to a Presbyterian church or vice versa. It happens. Uh, it's just to say that if we remove the labels and remove those those fellowships on those convictions, it does actually cause issues. There, there's a reason for those labels. They're, they're helpful to identify who's who and what's what. And uh, as long as those labels don't undermine your identity in Christ, they're fine. I talked about this in my book, Tiptoeing Through Tulip, on Calvinism and Arminianism. As long as Christ remains your identity and the title of Calvinist and Arminian just becomes a designation for your soteriological beliefs, you're fine. Which really is mostly polemics against you know, Calvinists or Arminians who make it sound like if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, you're really worshiping or pledging allegiance to Calvin or Arminius rather than Christ. And and it's just a little bit silly, but it should be recognized. But if you consider like a non-denominational individual who's adamantly against denominations, they're anti-denominational, yet they're against infant baptism, when the rubber meets the road, those individuals, more likely than not, are not comfortable with the practice or being in an environment where that practice takes place. And so the point in case would be, you'd be hard-pressed to find a non-denominational church that practices infant baptism. The joke that's long-standing is that non-denominational churches are just Baptist churches. But if you didn't have those labels of Presbyterian or Anglican or Lutheran, then you wouldn't know who practices infant baptism and who doesn't. So you would never be able to find a fellowship that has your shared convictions. So denominations in their most helpful light are labels to help individuals know what a church believes and whether or not they can worship with them in good conscience. And I think this is important. Now, there are some critiques against denominations that are valid, but we can't deny that these are helpful labels to some extent or another. Many denominations in attempts to be separated from denominationalism, um, to get away from denominational labels have become independent, but with two interesting scenarios. First, Church seekers are unsure about that church because of their independence and no clear marker of their doctrinal beliefs beyond a brief statement of faith or a church that is non-denominational on the surface, but when pressed, ends up keeping its network quiet. I have seen both, where if you go online and you look at a church that's independent, they're so independent that you don't want to go there because you don't know what they believe at all. And on the other end, a church that says it's independent, but if you look down at the fine print at the bottom of the page, it says that they have a network affiliation, which networks are the new denominations. Because really that's what's happened. In a pushback against denominations, there are popular alternatives to denominations such as networks and fellowships. Those are the new denomination alternatives. And ironically, these networks, these fellowships and denominations are still thriving more than those churches that try to be sole independent churches. Um, and actually, that's, um, I believe, referenced in the Handbook of Denominations in the United States. So let's talk about how this series will be structured, because this is the introduction, and so we need to talk about that. 
Um, we're going to look at key denominations, those general classes, and speak about their distinctive beliefs, and when necessary, those crucial dissensions that I mentioned above. We will not be covering every group, nor can I possibly exhaust the four categories that I'm going to be listing out here. But for each denomination, we're going to summarize the denomination's history, source of authority, and then speak to the four primary areas of theology. Polity, or church government, sacraments, or ordinances, distinctives, and emphasis. As we examine each denomination, we will uh, summarize their core positions on those above issues. And when there is an important split, we will note it. The goal is not so much to focus on the history or size of a given denomination, but what exactly sets them apart from the others on their most fundamental level. Usually, the level of agreement between a given denomination begins to shift when, again, a denomination moves onto a more progressive track, specifically in the modern times on the issue of the LGBTQ movements and women's role in the church. And so those led to those splits that indicate where a church lands on those particular issues. And when those splits occur, I will mention in passing one or two denominations that are prominent in those groups. Now, while many would rather not be coupled with those more progressive tracks and their denominations, we are speaking from the broader tradition uh, listed above, and we're going to know who took a different route. And this is not to say that those progressive routes are valid, but instead to make this easier to organize, follow, and use as a tool to understand where each denomination falls. Now, considering those four lists that I mentioned above of polity, church government, sacraments and ordinances, distinctives and emphasis, it's probably helpful to explain them for the sake of accessibility. And this is especially the case um, in terms of points one and two because these are the key distinctions between groups from a more broad perspective. The emphasis and distinctions tend to be in the finer details, such as how worship is conducted in a given denomination. And each of those will be explained as we progress. But let's look at point one and two. So polity or church government deals with how a church is structured at large. What are the church offices? Who runs the church? Who runs the church on a more local level? Who runs the church at a more broad level? These questions are answered by polity, church government. There are three primary philosophies or models regarding church government. You have Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and Congregational. Within the Episcopalian model, you have bishops who are the primary voices of authority. Episcopal structures can differ slightly from one another, and they are hierarchical in nature. And this can be seen in that the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Episcopal Church, and many Methodists in a modified form are Episcopalian. Among these, some Lutheran churches are Episcopal, while others may be Presbyterian or Congregational, and others, such as the Church of Sweden, practice Episcopal polity. So starting at the local level, um, you know, you're talking your, your church, the Episcopal model has a congregation, or sometimes called a parish, or most often called a parish, rather. And this parish has a, an individual that looks after it called the rector or the priest. Sometimes the priest or the rector is known as the elder or presbyter. To be clear, both bishop and presbyter have precedent in the New Testament. You know, their function in the New Testament obviously is debated because of these different polities. But episkopos is sometimes translated as overseer, but that's where we get bishop from. And then presbyter is just basically a transliteration of the Greek. And it's what we will sometimes translate as elder in your Bible if it's like an ESV or LSB and things of that nature. So back to polity, we have the parish or the congregation, 
that is led by a priest or a rector, and above the rector is a bishop. And above the bishop is the archbishop. Now, a bishop will oversee multiple rectors in a given area, and then an archbishop will oversee the various bishops. And so if we have a congregation with one rector, and then we have another congregation with another rector, and then another one with another rector, those three rectors are overseen by one bishop. And I will be putting a um, image to help you navigate through this um, on social media and on the webpage for this episode. So the general model of Episcopalian is that congregation, then a rector, then a bishop, then an archbishop. Now to compare, I thought I would explain the Catholic model. At the bottom, you have the parish or the congregation. And then you have the priest that oversees a parish. Then you have a bishop that oversees a diocese or district consisting of priests or parishes. Basically, they oversee a district. And then you have an archbishop that oversees a larger area of churches, and they oversee bishops. Then above that, you have cardinals who are leading bishops that are elected, and they're a governing body that works with the pope and elects the pope. And then above them is the pope, and he is the head bishop elected by the cardinals for life. So that's an Episcopalian model where you have those layers. Now, if you look at another example, just for clarity, uh, the Anglican Church, you have the congregations, then you have the rectors over the congregations, then you have the bishops over the rectors, and then you have the archbishops. And in Anglicanism, within England, there are two archbishops, the Archbishop of York and the Archbishop of Canterbury. York is um, the head of the northern province. The Archbishop of Canterbury is head of the southern province and the primate or head administrator of the entire Anglican communion. Now, above them technically is the British monarch as supreme governor, but it's more of an honorary title, kind of like how it's an honorary title um, to be a monarch anyway. Um, the Episcopal Church in the USA follows along a similar path. You have the congregation, the rector, then the bishop, and then you have a general convention that has a house of bishops that's presiding or retired bishops, and then a house of deputies, elected clergy and lay people, and then above that, a presiding bishop, primary leader in the governing body, who has communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury over in England. Episcopalian is probably the most difficult to navigate, especially whenever you get on a global scale, but this model places a great emphasis on the succession of authority, beginning with the apostles. So there's a great deal of emphasis on apostolic succession. And the, the idea is there's a historical continuity because of how early this Episcopalian model developed in early church history. Um, we're not going to go into all the debates on that, but really the, the main emphasis is placed on continuity or ordination from leaderships where there's a, there's a continuity, a line of succession from the apostles, and then there is a historical claim to be made given how early the Episcopalian model appears to have developed. The next is the Presbyterian model. Now, within this framework, each local congregation elects elders to a group of elders known as a session. Among these elders is the head or teaching elder or pastor. This session, or sometimes called the consistory, governs local congregations. So a plurality of elders or a session, and this session governs a local congregation. The members of this session, some or all, are also members of what is called a presbytery. And the presbytery is a collection of these sessions or these elders, and it has authority over several churches in a given region. 
In addition to this, some of the members of the Presbytery are members of what is called the General Assembly that will oversee the various Presbyteries. Sometimes Presbyteries can be grouped into a Synod, which can act as a means of administration between the General Assembly and the Presbyteries. And those who would hold to this form of church government are the Presbyterians and the Reformed churches, with the exception of Reformed Baptists. So when we're talking about the Presbyterian model, we have a congregation, then we have a plurality of elders over each congregation, and those elders are also part of a presbytery, and those presbyteries all meet at the General Assembly. And like I said, I'll have an image for this as well. Now, our last model is congregational. The congregational model is generally similar to the presbytery model, except that it ends at a session, the plurality of elders, or a group of governing elders in a local congregation. Um, in this instance, a congregation is governed by a plurality of elders, sometimes, however, with a single elder or pastor or bishop as the head of that church. Bishop is, by the way, the less common of those designations. Usually it's a head elder, head pastor, teaching pastor as the head over the plurality of elders. Within this model, the pastor is the head of a given congregation with a board serving under him and advising him. In some cases, this model of congregationalism takes a form where the deacons nearly act as a group of elders with the head pastor and not necessarily a plurality of elders. These are the most common forms of congregational polity, yet some congregations have adopted a board polity where the board is over the presiding elder or the pastor of the congregation. Along with the less common models, there are some models such as pure democracy, which removes the hierarchical structure altogether, and it leaves the government to the congregation as a whole. The congregational model is found in many churches, such as Baptists, non-denominational, Mennonite, Evangelical Free, churches, the Church of Christ, and so forth. And so if we're talking about common congregational models, you have a congregation with a plurality of elders, or you have a congregation with a plurality of elders and a head elder over them. And those are going to be your most common congregational models. Okay. And so now let's talk about our second category, that is sacraments of ordinances. Um, there is debate about whether or not individuals should use the term sacrament or ordinance as a term. I will be using them interchangeably, and that's just the way it's going to be. Now, when it comes to the sacraments, generally there are two, but when it is necessary or a church holds to more than one, I will mention them in passing. Uh, but we are primarily concerned with those two. That is the Lord's Supper, or also called the Eucharist, or also called communion, and baptism. While some denominations extend these sacraments again to more than one, our focus is going to be on these two. Now, on the subject of baptism, the two primary positions at play are paedo-baptism, or infant baptism, and credo-baptism, or believers-only baptism. These are not the only specifics of baptism that will be discussed in our examination, but these are often the beginning dividing lines between a denomination. When it is necessary to expand upon a denomination's particulars on baptism, such as baptismal regeneration, no water baptism, immersion only, it will be included in the appropriate section. Now, concerning the Lord's Supper, we will mostly be looking at what occurs with the elements in each denomination. This is usually framed with the verbiage of, quote-unquote, the real presence of Jesus in the elements. To briefly outline this, we can highlight the views of the Lord's Supper that came out of the Reformation so that you have a reference point in the same way with ecclesiology. So that whenever I talk about denomination, I say they hold to Episcopalian and this view of the Lord's Supper, you can just, oh, 
I remember what he said about that, or I can go listen back and see what he said about that. But it kind of streamlines the series and uh, cuts out a little bit of the extra legwork. Now, while Catholics will not be included in the series, I want to include the Catholic position as a reference again, the same way I did with the Episcopalian model. Uh, and their position on the Lord's Supper is called transubstantiation. Trans meaning change and substantiation meaning substance. In their view, the elements of the bread and wine in their substance change into the body and blood of Christ. Sometimes this is called the literal presence. And in this view, this change occurs through the consecration of a priest and the elements only change in substance, that is, in their nature, but not in their accidents. That is what is perceived by the senses. So what is perceived by the senses is bread and wine, but what they are in substance after consecration are the body and blood of Jesus. Without going into the full view of the Eucharist from the Catholic perspective, we can simply say that for Catholics, the elements literally change in their substance into the body and blood of Jesus. The Lutheran position is best understood as sacramental unity. While often the position is called consubstantiation, for the most part, Lutherans reject this designation. Some accept it, most don't. The view of sacramental unity holds that the substance or the nature of the body and blood and bread and wine are present together intermingled. Usually this draws parallels in Lutheran theology with the hypostatic union, but the view is ultimately the literal body and blood of Christ and could be articulated as holding to the real presence in the supper in terms of it being body and blood in a real sense. For the Reformed tradition, the supper is a means of grace, giving union to believers to Christ. For Calvin, as it's represented, the supper is a communion with the real body and blood, but in a spiritual sense. So rather than believing that Christ is brought down into the elements, the believers are brought up to Christ in the sacrament. Calvin would also state that Christ's true and substantial presence is essential for the Christian's nourishment. For the tradition, this is considered the real presence. It doesn't have to literally be the body and blood in the elements for it to be real presence. In other words, the spiritual presence is no less real than a literal body and blood presence. Now with that, Calvin agreed with Zwingli that Christ's body ascended and his human nature is spatially bound, yet in his deity, Christ could be omnipresent in a way that Christ is wholly present, just not in his wholeness. The Westminster Confession follows Calvin with fewer specifics by stating that the supper presents Christ as really, but spiritually present. Now Zwingli, another reformer, would hold to spiritual memorialism. Now for Zwingli, the elements cannot be the literal presence of the physical body of Christ since his body was offered once and for all at Calvary. And this could compromise the full humanity of Christ by granting to his human nature omnipresence. Instead, the elements point to that action in the past and the elements bring the church to remember the work of Christ. Now, while Zwingli held to a memorial view and many paint him as being pure memorialists, um, it was not pure memorialism. Zwingli also held that Christ was meaningfully present with the faithful as they partook in the elements of the supper. Zwingli states that while the presence of Jesus was not physical, he is really present spiritually while congregations receive the cup and the bread and faith. For Zwingli, there was a reason to hesitate when stating that Christ was present because this could imply that he was physically present, but Zwingli did not take issue with the idea that Christ was fully spiritually present in the supper. Um, a final view would be pure memorialism which holds that Christ is not physically or spiritually present in the elements, but instead the meal is to memorialize Christ and his work 
as a body of believers. The elements remain bread and wine, but are not insignificant in this pure memorial view. So these views, when we speak about denominations, will be considered as a spectrum. We'll use the verbiage of literal presence on the more Catholic end of the spectrum, that is literal body and blood in the elements and memorialism for the more pure memorialism end of the spectrum. But again, it's a spectrum. And so I'll use these designations of, you know, Lutheran or Zwinglian or Calvin um, or pure memorialism as a reference point, but then clarify beyond that. But those are important to know. And also note that I am distinguishing between Zwinglian and pure memorialism because while they're often conflated, they're still distinct. And I'll be using literal presence instead of real presence because literal represents the position more literal body and blood because the spiritual presence is not less real. And so um, that's just one way I'm going to nip that. A last consideration before we close out this introduction episode is on high church versus low church. And in speaking to different denominations, one will come across the distinction between a high church and a low church. The terms ultimately describe the worship of a church, specifically concerning rituals and order and liturgy. A church that is characterized by liturgy or emphasizes rituals, has special garments, calendars, etc., is considered generally a high church. Those congregations that are less structured and less formal are considered low church. In most cases, the dynamic is a spectrum, and the rhetoric on both sides tends to be heated. So for the most part, I will refrain from using these terms beyond stating that a church may fall on the more high church end of the spectrum and vice versa. So that's going to close out our introduction and our preliminaries. Next week, we will talk about defining denominations, who's in, who's out, and then we'll talk about how many denominations there are, talking briefly about the counting of denominations. So I hope that this episode laid the groundwork of what you can expect from this series. I hope that you can get something from it, even if I'm not going to be talking on something you specifically want me to be talking about. Like I said, my goal is going to be 10 to 12 episodes after these introductory episodes, which are only two. Um, And so we're going to try to keep denominations in one episode. So I'm going to have one episode for Anglicanism, one episode for Lutheranism, one episode for I need to figure out how I'm going to do the Baptist. Uh, But that's how that's going to work. Um, so until next week, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.